Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober, covering lifestyles in the world of real food. As we strive for a better world in terms of agriculture and other ways to heal our planet, more people are looking at sustainable and impact investing. My guest today is Amantia Muhadini. Amantia is an executive director and a sustainable and impact investing strategist for UBS. Amantia, welcome to the program. Hi, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you on, and I appreciate that you can take time out of your work schedule to come on and talk about this because this is an area that we haven't covered, and we really like to look at the world of organic and sustainable farming and CPG from all different angles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And look, these are topics that I think a lot about, but specifically from that angle of investing. So as investors, we're obviously not only investing in CPG companies and agriculture companies and in broadly these sectors, but we're also taking a macro view and thinking how are these elements thinking come together in our expectations of financial returns in the future. And as such, part of my role is to think about sustainability or resilience and longer term trends and how they tie in together with investments and, again, these areas of coverage that you're focusing on. Yes, and I know the area may be new to some, although I think that some have been hearing about this in the past few years. We are hearing more of the term of impact investing and how it's a different type of investing that most people will know. So let's start out, explain to the listeners exactly what sustainable and impact investing is. Yes, happy to. With a fair warning that we have lots of alphabet soups in this industry here, so I'll do my best to also pare those down. Sustainable and impact investing, the way we like to think about it at UBS is a form of investing where you are targeting financial returns, just like you would with any investments. But in addition, you're adding sustainability objectives as part of your goal here and what you want to achieve. The difference between sustainable and impact investing, we're using these two terms, is really sustainable investing is any form of investing that has the sustainability embedded into the analysis and, and the decisions you're taking. Impact investing goes a step further than that and says beyond embedding or considering and benefiting from thinking about sustainability, how can we ensure that our dollars that are allocated in a specific way can show measurable change? How can we show that something different, hopefully positive, good is happening in the world as a result of what we're doing? So those are just those terms. You'll hear me maybe use SI, short for sustainable investing, just as the umbrella, the shorthand for this industry. So now how did you specifically get involved with sustainable and impact investing? Well, I will say I have the good fortune of having dedicated my academic training and my whole career so far to this field. I started when I was in undergrad, I was studying public policy. I really cared about thinking, how can I have personally an impact in the world? And then as I graduated, I changed my question. I thought, how is the world working? What are the more interesting problems out there? And that intersection of having an impact and thinking about financial markets was where I personally landed my career. Now, making this a little more abstract away from Amantia, <laughs> I'd say more broadly, this is how all investors who are thinking about sustainability are looking up. And they're saying, we allocate capital, we invest for our pension funds, right? We invest for our individual objectives. Are we thinking about where the world is going? 
is everything around the people's health, the planetary health, are those things being incorporated in these decisions? And so that's the work I get the great fun and privilege of working on every day, but I think it matters to all of us. I think that's amazing that you knew so early on in your career that this is what you want to do and that you're able to do it. Sounds like you're thriving. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been very fortunate. Although no road is a straight line, that may be its own topic <laughs> for a different podcast. <laughs> How do you think it's changed as you first got into it? Sure. So look, the industry definitely precedes my career. <laughs> Sustainable investing, previously called socially responsible investing, has a history that I started in the 1970s and really picking up in the 1990s. So we're looking here at a long, relatively long history. It started with investors who wanted to put their dollars where their values were, often faith-based investors. And it started in exclusionary manners. These investors were saying our faith guides us in a specific way, how can we exclude investments that don't align? It really got a lot of traction during the anti-apartheid movements around the world, where a lot of investors were saying, we do not want to support a regime that goes so against our values. And now here's an interesting thing that happened in the mid-2000s. Beyond this values alignment, we started to also observe that sustainability goes hand in hand with financial performance. And so the today's version of sustainable investing really was coined in the mid-2000s, as well as impact investing. And that's where investors started saying, instead of excluding things, what do I not want to invest in? How can I find those things that I want to screen in, as opposed to out, in my portfolio, so that I can allocate capital and really make sure that I'm considering those areas of the world holistically? So that's a little bit of a brief history of sustainable investing. And even in the last five years, we've seen huge changes in the industry. More measurements, more assets. So I think we hit an inflection point here from niche to becoming more mainstream and new topics that we're exploring really every day. So it keeps changing year to year, I'd say. Wow. When you said that it started in the 70s, at first I was a little bit like, whoa, I didn't realize it went that far back then. To think of it, it makes sense. And as you brought up the anti-apartheid movement, that started in the 60s, so I could see it getting rise in the 70s. Another thing I wonder if it had anything to do with first occurring in the 70s was that that was when there was a rise for the movement for renewable energy or appropriate technology, as it was called, and that's actually what the appropriate inappropriate omnivore, did that also help the idea of sustainable investing emerge? That is such an interesting question. To be very honest, I don't know. A lot of the literature around the topic really is focused on this values based as the origin. It's possible that there were investors who were thinking about sustainability in the term of appropriate longer term renewable energy back then. What I can say for sure is that this has become one of the core lenses today in the mid 2000s, especially in the 2018s and now in the 2020s. And part of why I can say with more certainty <laughs> that this is what we're focusing on now rather than then is a question of investment technology as well. Maybe you don't think of technology as you think about investments, but back in the day, investors were not really able to have all of this financial information at the tip of their fingers using their terminals with all of this data, they're running trades online and so forth. Everything was much slower. And so now as we have more visibility, more data, and these parallel technologies like renewables have really gotten to scale. Now we can put all of those things together in a much more nuanced way, which wasn't possible decades ago. And to people who have a preconceived notion of what investing is and they don't know about the specific area of sustainable impact investing, 
How would you explain to them that it differs from the conventional investing? Yeah, look, in some ways, I'd say it's very similar to conventional investing in that you're still looking to advance your financial goals, right? That's the starting point often. But it's different because essentially when you're evaluating a security, let's say you're evaluating whether to invest in a company for simplicity, you as a regular investor would look at a company's growth rate, you would look at their valuation, you would look at their revenue projections, whether their market is supposed to grow and embed some assumptions there. Interest rate environment, all of those things. As a sustainable investor, you do all of those things. And you also say, well, how's the company managing its people? Is it hiring the right workforce given the market where it wants to move into? Is it able to retain its workforce given tight labor markets, if high turnover, which increases its costs? If it has to rely on resources, like a company in agriculture, is it placed in a position thinking about these resources depleting? So as a sustainable investor, you really are very explicitly thinking about these questions systematically, and then you're investing with that as an objective. I want those companies that can do this better than their peers, because I think that means something about the expected financial returns that I'll get. And then with sustainable investing, I know that there's a lot of different areas you can invest, and we covered a couple of them early on with the origins of it. I know one which I think the listeners of the show will be most interested in is nature-based solutions. Tell us what this involves. Sure. It is, as I was saying earlier, this space continues to evolve. And I'd say nature-based solutions is very much a nascent area for sustainable impact investors. To borrow from the World Bank, the World Bank defines nature-based solutions as actions that one takes to protect or to manage sustainably or to restore natural ecosystems. And the goal of these actions is to address societal changes that could include climate change to human health to food security, water security. So broadly, NBS, nature-based solutions, look for both human and planetary well-being, as well as broad biodiversity benefits. So it's a new way of thinking about investment and really solutions. So far, we've thought about solutions in terms of technology. This is going a little bit more holistically thinking about ecosystems as well. You brought up the issue of biodiversity, which I know is a big part of the nature-based solutions. Would you say that biodiversity is connected to food security? <laughs> yes, I would. All of the research from the UN and the scientific community points to the really huge importance of how biodiversity provides a service to our economic system. And it's a service that is not priced in, is not really one that we convert into dollars of GDP created, for example, or dollars of, of cost or benefit most of the time. When it comes to food security, again, a relatively recent report from the Food and Agriculture Organization part of the UN from 2019 shows that there are about 6,000 plant species that are cultivated for food today. And according to the FAO, of these 6,000, there's fewer than 200, which actually contribute to the global food output that we're consuming. And only about nine of them account for 66% of total crop production. Right. So think about biodiversity as the diversity of species, animal, plant and aquatic species. And when you look at this FAO report, you really think we're really relying on a narrow set of species. If we start losing them, that could have really significant impacts on food security. Now, I know you're focused a lot on animals as well. So in thinking about that same report, they looked at livestock production in the world. And they know that most livestock production is based on about 40 animal species, 
only. And really a handful of those will produce the vast majority of milk, of eggs, of meat that we consume. So think about it again, how we're really focused on a few and how critical they are to the way that we've designed our whole food system for the world. Right. There's very much the issue of big agriculture, especially with livestock. There's, I believe, four companies that I know control a big part of the overall system of it. Now, there is a focus certainly with people like me and other people in my field, other podcasters and bloggers and lots of wonderful organizations that are promoting the concept of eating locally. Is there an element of local economies within sustainable investing? Yeah, I'd say there is. Now, it's tricky. It certainly is there when it comes to thinking about sustainability. And local economies are important, not just when it comes to thinking about climate or the environment, right, or animal welfare, because they're also important to human resilience. So one of the concepts here, just to introduce yet another one, is place-based investing. And you could think of that as investing in a local community community from consuming locally to helping that infrastructure so that people can have enough economic incentives and be sufficiently economically resilient to produce some of these services like food that we all need in a sustainable way from an economic perspective, but also in a sustainable way from a resource allocation perspective. When it comes to also reducing how much shipping you're doing around the world, there is where we can see that connection to climate as well. The one note that I would make is that's the double-sided coin that we're facing here between ideally being as localized as possible, minimizing the negative impacts of shipping. But on the other hand, we also have to think about soil health and these things being nurtured in a way that you're not extracting too much from the same location, and then you cannot sustain it over the longer term. I'd say soil health is one of the most important issues in terms of sustainable agriculture and a sustainable biodiversity. And with soil health, there's very much a push now for what's known as regenerative agriculture. Is that a term that you're hearing more of in the world of sustainable and impact investing? Definitely hearing more of it. Absolutely. I'd say hearing more of it, but it's still relatively nascent. It's relatively niche. So it's those who know it, know it. I can't say that most investors look for regenerative ag solutions, but I do suspect that it will become more and more important. Just like the question of biodiversity itself, it really has picked up as a conversation in the last handful of years. And now a more pickup in the conversation just means more minds are trying to figure out how do we measure it? How do we incentivize if it's regenerative ag or just broadly biodiversity? diversity focused investing so it becomes economic so that it becomes scalable right it can move away from just mine and your portfolios to directing the billions or trillions of dollars of capital that is needed it is still a relatively new term regenerative agriculture and of course on my blog and podcast i'm covering how it's growing every year when i go to the expo west i like to talk about how we're seeing more of it and i'm starting to work at more of my blog when i do my best of lists I've been able to finally make my first one that's all about regenerative products. I did that earlier this year for hot dogs, but that was a small amount of them, which I'm hoping will grow when I republish it next year. And I talk about regenerative in other lists with certain products, but it's a while before certainly I can do lists where everything is regenerative. So it's still a new term. I would say perhaps regenerative is what organic was in the late 90s. And obviously what we saw with organic, I think that it is very realistic to see regenerative reach where organic became after that. And the question also becomes, is regenerative replacing organic? Is organic still an important thing in sustainable investing? Or is organic, it was a starting point, but 
now we're going beyond organic and the word isn't used as much. What are your thoughts? Very interesting reflection. Before answering your question directly here, one thing that strikes me, and I'll have to go and find that list <laughs> that you posted, but one thing that strikes me here is I often get questions around sustainable investing and what drives it. What are the incentives? Why do we believe that you can get financial returns from investing sustainably? And part of the answer here is that companies are adjusting their operations and they're trying to figure out what are the ways in which they can embed sustainability. In this case, it's hot dog companies. It sounds like they're trying to figure out this question. And part of the driver there is consumers. So you and what you're doing with your podcast and with your blog is you're directly speaking to consumers who have this demand, who think we need to think about the world and our consumption slightly differently, right? And that is that virtuous cycle here, which is incentivizing more innovation. So that's just kind of one reflection. I see it broadly at a meta level, but it's good to think about it in the context of regenerative ag, which, as you say, is just starting, but hopefully we'll get to that scale moment. Now, in terms of organic, I'd say, sure, in consumer-facing products, it's still probably a big label and it holds weight from our perspective as investors. It's less so much about the label and what CPG companies are labeling their products and is more thinking what do their supply chains look like? What are their sourcing mechanisms? What are their production mechanisms, which may amount to earning them an organic label, but really is more how are they thinking about everything that goes in? Is that sustainable, for lack of a better term, for the longer term? And then a final reflection here, organic in the 90s is a very good example where it was the Wild West right? You'd see lots of things labeled organic and you didn't really know what was actually going on. And then over time, in some jurisdictions, you see more requirement for alignment. Then you hopefully start seeing, okay, if it says organic, then I know it means X, Y, Z. I think this reflects a little bit of the challenges as well as hopefully the solution for both biodiversity investing and other broader areas of sustainable investing. It's still a little bit of the Wild West in terms of closures, in terms of transparency, what is happening and what qualifies truly. But we are seeing more and more development of standard testing organizations that will hopefully make it easy then for us as investors to know what counts, what to allocate capital to for consumers to have more credibility. And then that helps the market fall in line and know where to really innovate. So that's my hope, but also in a way, word of caution for where we are today. I like how you addressed the question at the beginning. And I think that that's an important area to get into of explaining to people why impact investing, as you've been working it now for a while, has that changed? And is it becoming easier to explain to clients why impact investing is important. It's definitely become relatively easier, although there are still lots of myths and some misconceptions that we can't deny. 2020 was a very interesting point for a million reasons. But for this space of sustainable investing was interesting because in the US and globally as well, we saw, as I mentioned earlier, an inflection point. We saw really almost like the floodgates open and more investors piling into strategies that had a sustainability focus. And part of my hypothesis as to why this happened, it was because, well, we had lots more time at home, those who could stay and work from home. But also, more importantly, because we saw this connection between a thing that was not tied to investments, right? A health crisis. And we saw how a health crisis, a quote-unquote non-financial metric, actually had huge economic consequences. It happened suddenly, even though there were warning signs before, and the world wasn't prepared for it, and it had all of these ripple effects. 
in a way, sustainable investing is about preempting to every extent possible these kinds of events and channeling capital to areas to prevent at least those places where we can see the writing on the wall. And so that moment really started to crystallize the thesis behind sustainable and impact investing. 22 was a little bit of a reversal because the war in Ukraine that resulted in an energy crisis and skyrocketing inflation, increase of gas prices and so forth, that had a little bit of a reversal into the impact of performance. So people were saying, oh, look, we need energy. And if we transition to renewable energy too quickly without creating the sources that we need to quickly transfer, that will result in higher prices. Okay, pull the brakes. And so while the brakes haven't actually been pulled, while assets have continued to go into sustainability, there was an interesting moment just two years after COVID where people started saying, let's think about the nuance of this. So I veered a little bit away from agriculture here and biodiversity, but hopefully these other examples from the environment help tie it together. I think they do. And I think those are other issues that our listeners will be interested in. And I like to go into both of those. First, going back to 2020 and the pandemic, during that time, there was a new term that I think a lot of people were not even familiar with called supply chains. And you had even talked about supply chains a little earlier. Is transparency in supply chains an important element of biodiversity investing? Yes, it's really important because most companies that we invest in and really most consumer-facing companies are not going to be vertically integrated, meaning they do not own every part of what they produce. So what they're doing is they're essentially going to vendors or suppliers to buy the different components of what they need. And these suppliers will go to other suppliers. So one simple example here is to think of fish, where you'll have companies that will go and be the fishing companies somewhere like in the waters of Southeast Asia. They'll catch shrimp and then that shrimp will get processed by a different company that isn't the one that is doing the fishing. And then that company that is doing processing is then selling it to a third one, which may or may not be what brings it to your store, right, at your home in LA or wherever you sit. And so the company that sells it to you needs to know who did the fishing, because that is ultimately what tells you, was this done sustainably? Was this a species at risk? Was labor considerations taken into account? So that supply chain and the transparency is so important to think about biodiversity risk. You also need to know where things are being sourced from in the world, because some regions of the world have richer biodiversity than others. So biodiversity isn't interchangeable like carbon footprint or like CO2 emissions are which is all in the air. It all comes <laughs> together in a way. So supply chain transparency is key. And I'll say it's one of those challenges. Again, a lot of these distributed supply chains, after you get from the first to the second to the third tier, companies often lose track. And so even that process of traceability in itself could unlock a lot, but it's an area of innovation by itself. Yes. And this is a major focus of my podcast as it's about CPG. And I bring on a lot of entrepreneurs who make products where they do come from different farms. So my focus of those podcasts is always talking about how they look for farms to source with what they look for in them and really giving a transparency of where they come from. Something that I am seeing more of is there are a number of CPG products now where they may make something like a beef stick and it comes from their own farm. Do you see that as a growing future where people, they're ranchers, but then they're also making some kind of packaged goods with what's on their farm or maybe with crops too, for instance, a sauerkraut company and it comes from the cabbage right on their farm. 
Yeah, lots of interesting ideas there. I think a lot of them will flourish. Some of them won't make it. Many will make it to scale. We'll have to see here. I think one of the questions that we'll also have to ask is that of scalability and what does our future economic system look like? Can it be localized? What are the implications of it being fully localized? What are the implications of it being fully localized for those who live in wealthier countries versus those who live in less wealthy countries or even regions within a country, right? So I'd say lots of promising areas here, but it's not clear cut to me that this is going to be the answer that will solve our problems. I think we'll have to be careful about thinking about unintended consequences or full integration or complete decentralization. And that's the challenge here. Yes, to have your own farm and then to also be having your own CPG line it takes a lot of commitment. And I don't think it's something for everyone. Another aspect that I see companies doing, and this is more from the opposite end, but it is also geared towards transparency is having a system where you can actually see the farm that they come from. Companies are putting QR codes on their packages and you can then see on the internet where that farm is that the food comes from. It seems to be mostly done with livestock, at least here in the U.S., but I have seen in other countries, like for instance, I was in Ireland a few months ago and they have a thing there where you can track where potatoes come from for their potato chips. Do you see that as a future? Yeah, I love that idea very much. I think as an investor, I would love to identify these companies, the tech companies that are providing this traceability technology, right? Because the problem they're solving is such a fascinating one. Potatoes are interesting. If you think of a bag of potatoes, do you track every single potato? Do you chip every single one? Do you batch it? How do you know how it's going from the processor? What if you buy fries or something that has gone through multiple steps? So it's very interesting as a logistics problem, as a tech problem. And we're seeing more of these companies pop up. Most in the private market, but some of them will grow up, will get to scale, and then hopefully this will be that area of getting consumers the transparency they want. We're thinking about this in terms of obviously sustainability and sourcing, but as a consumer, I also care about my health personally, and I want to know that my potatoes or my fish or my meat is certified, has been treated well, is fully nutritious, not full of antibiotics perhaps, and so hopefully that consumers wanting to care about quality and their own health. Maybe we'll drive the incentives to help on the biodiversity, the nature conservation, and the labor elements that this also all brings. And I like that you bring up about healthcare and about antibiotics, because that is another question that I have. I know a major recent topic in sustainable investing is antimicrobial resistance. And I know that a lot of that has been the focus of antibiotics and healthcare, but we also do see that in agriculture. So is there a way that that relates with investment opportunities for sustainable food? Yeah, it does, although hopefully will more so in the future. I think we're hitting all the great future topics of development in this conversation. Just for a quick definition for the listeners, antimicrobial resistance is really defines or describes the ability that organisms like bacteria, like fungi or viruses have to resist to the drugs that once were effective in treating them. So in healthcare, that means if you have strep throat and normally you would just get penicillin from your local doctor or your kid's pediatrician, maybe penicillin doesn't work anymore and you have to go and look at another drug. Now, luckily for that one, there's about eight that are approved, but there are drugs where it's only fewer. And if you get more and more resistance, then there's nothing that you can use to treat even simple things. Now, the reason why it ties to agriculture and then to your point, Aaron, is 
if we think about the sources of antimicrobial resistance, they have to do with overprescription of antibiotics. They have to do with sanitation issues. But really, they also have to do with the antibiotic use in animals. Estimates on this vary widely from what I've seen in my research. One source from one academic paper published in the Science Journal in 2017 estimated that about 70% of antimicrobials that are prescribed globally are used for veterinary purposes, meaning they're used for things like animal raising, rearing, and production that ends up in our food. So that's the connection here, right? It's this way that we're using to grow and scale our agricultural system potentially could have really significant negative impacts into our health that we could see play out sort of over decades. When it comes to sustainability opportunities, we ask, how do you address this problem? How do you start to, again, prevent it? And pharma, innovation, R&D, all of those are part of the solution set. But maybe another part of the solution set is to diminish this use of antimicrobials and antibiotics in animals. We've seen China make some steps towards this in setting laws, essentially, to start to prevent or really damp down some of this use because of a recognition of this being a challenge. And so identifying those companies that don't need to use antibiotics in animal rearing could be a way to help hopefully diminish the risks while we figure out what are other alternatives. Wow, in China. So when I hear that, I think that should really be a wake-up call to the U.S. that they've done it in China, and we really need to get on that of reducing the use of antibiotics and I know there has been some push for it. Of course, this was now a while ago, and I'm not sure much has happened, but I know that several years ago, the Food and Water Watch organization was very big on removing antibiotics from factory farming. Yeah, there certainly are lots of efforts in the U.S. as well, from factory farming to the CDC, starting to pull together companies to think about other solutions. So it is happening. It is in, on the way, but probably not with a level of urgency in the mainstream, in the broad public, that we would need to see. But who knows, maybe this will scale and accelerate as well. Well, I hope so. Certainly just talking about it is giving me hope, and I hope that listeners are hearing this and using it as inspiration to do more activism and encouragement of it. We focused a lot on agriculture in terms of the area of sustainable investing, but I know that there are many other areas, so let's get into those now. Look, the areas are broad. The way I think about topics of focus in sustainable investing is from this financial term called materiality. So really what materiality means is just another word to say, is this relevant? Does this matter? As an investor, does this thing matter to my reasonable expectation of how a company's financial performance will go? So when you think about it from that lens, then anything goes, right? So you can think of water as being relevant. Who is water relevant for? Well, agricultural companies, utilities that use hydropower, CPG companies, certainly, <laughs> right? So that's one. We talked about agriculture, biodiversity, broadly climate change. Any sort of resource reliance sector is thinking about these things. On the people side, you can think about diversity as another area of sustainable and impact investing that is growing. We talked about antimicrobial resistance, so broadly healthcare and innovation, right? I could go on here on and on. I'm just trying to give a sense of like, basically any topic that you can think of is financially relevant for one industry or the other. And so depending on your starting point, sustainability or the industry, you will probably end up finding the match. I know that along with regenerative agriculture and organics, 
As far as areas on the consumer angle, an area we're hearing more about is renewable energy, solar panel, and electric cars. And I would imagine that that's a big part of impact investing. Yes, it's so big that, in fact, I didn't even think about listing it. (laughs) It certainly is a big part of the conversation now. It's tied under the umbrella of thinking of the energy transition. So if we have our current economic system built on the current sources of energy, but as we're thinking gradually about shifting towards energy sources that have less carbon footprint to ideally no carbon footprint, but even less, right, as we're going down to that zero over the next few decades, then how do we think about this? Some of the ways in which people are thinking about it are from both supply and demand side of energy. So think about supply, right? That's easy to think. Currently, our supply of energy comes from fossil fuel-based sources of energy, largely. That's where there's an opportunity to grow the capacity coming from renewable energy, which in the U.S. stands at just about 30% of the current energy capacity produced comes from renewables. We need to grow that much faster before we can sort of start switching. On the other hand, while we grow that, there's also the demand side. What do we use energy for? Well, we use it to produce things like the steel and the cement, the concrete that we need to build infrastructure. We use it to fuel our cars. We use it to heat our homes, right? Some of those things are difficult to lower energy demand from. Steel is steel. There's not a lot of scalable ways of making steel without a lot of energy source. But for our homes, by making our homes more energy efficient, we can decrease the demand for energy and therefore decrease our carbon footprint, right? For our cars, by switching to electric vehicles, we can hopefully reduce the demand on that side. So both of these are levers that are being pulled at at the same time. As investors, we think, well, what are those investment opportunities on both sides of this equation that we can go into to really benefit from how they're scaling? Yes. And you touched upon steel as an industry that could use renewable energy as a way to improve its production standards. Another industry where renewable energy is often used actually goes back to the agriculture community. I've interviewed a number of farms that they talk about that their practices are sustainable in more ways than one because certainly they can be sustainable with the regenerative agriculture and the crop rotation, the holistic management. And other areas that they'll point out are things such as they have farms now that run on solar power. Yeah, such an interesting area. When we look at the data of where the sources of CO2 emissions are in the world, agriculture is a significant chunk of that. I don't have the number off the top of my head right now, but it's in the order of 10 to 15%, let's say globally. And so shrinking that through a combination of renewable sources at production, but also reducing transport related emissions, which is again, what you're talking about, Aaron, the more local production and consumption, that's a big way to make a dent on the problem of climate change, which then comes back, hopefully, in positive returns in lowering the risks to biodiversity and lowering the risks that climate change brings to agriculture in creating droughts and so forth. So again, everything is interconnected. (laughs) And I'm glad that you're speaking to all of these entrepreneurs and farm owners that are thinking about things holistically as well. Yes, it truly is amazing how they're getting into that and other things too, such as we see the growth of recycled packaging. That's also a very important thing I'm seeing with a lot of companies. Yeah, definitely important too. Although again, it's interesting as an investor, I think what is that element that is the most financially relevant, the most material? And as an impact or sustainable investor, I think what's the thing that you can change that makes the biggest difference in the system? So packaging is important, but is it as important as the supply chain? 
is it as important as the energy source? And the answer will depend on the company, but I would love for your listeners and for you to dig more into that. How do you balance packaging versus doing these harder things, which may have a bigger impact? As consumers, we see the packaging and we say, ah, did I need that many boxes? But really what we should focus on is how is the thing that came into the boxes made? Because if the thing is made well, then maybe the boxes are smaller price to play or we can sort that out later. Great points. And I can certainly understand that, yes, a lot of times the package is the smaller thing to worry about. On the other hand, I think there are some people that would like to see all of it. Oh, absolutely. And look, plastics, again, I think you could have a very interesting hour-long conversation just on plastic pollution, what it's doing to ocean health, what it's doing sort of how it relates to climate, how it's a source of energy demand. So I'm with you. It's also an important one. And it's true. We have to be ambitious. So we have to think about all these things. Yes. And as we think about which element of it is most important in terms of investing, I also think of the overall art of how investable is biodiversity currently and what do you see as needed in order to make it more investable? Yeah, that's the crux of the question I'm often asked. Okay, this was very educational. What do I do? (laughs) And I'd say sustainable investing broadly, a lot of the areas that I was outlining and in particular energy transition, renewables, energy efficiency, a lot of that is very investable. There's lots of scalable opportunities. Biodiversity-focused solutions are starting to emerge, but we still are a little bit of a ways to go, in a way, from targeted biodiversity accretive solutions. One of the things that we need more of is more standard measurement and standard reporting from companies, especially those companies which are extractives, so they rely on biodiversity or they negatively impact biodiversity, which goes from traditional energy companies companies to ag companies to broadly CPG companies. There's some good news there. One more acronym, I think I promised acronyms in the beginning, is the TNFD. It stands for the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosure. Now, this as an acronym, what it was attempting to do is to set a standard set of metrics to say, if you're a company in these sectors, we only need to know these 10 things, and this is how you measure them. And the TNFD is about to issue their final reporting requirements in September. This will be voluntary in the beginning, but as an investor, I'm quite excited to see what they will look like, because the hope is that as companies see them, they'll have a standard way of reporting which will give transparency. Once we have transparency, then it becomes investable because we can distinguish between which ones are doing more or less harm or more or less benefit to the environment and biodiversity. So for me, that's one area of hope. A second one is a thing called biodiversity credit, which essentially is a way to compensate an economic activity that is adding value to biodiversity. So let me illustrate this. Let's say that you have a way of producing some crop, let's say cocoa, and you do that by building a farm in an area that has a lot of natural biodiversity in a way that regenerates. It's, it ties to regenerative ag, right? So if you can show what are the units of biodiversity that you're protecting or you're even restoring and you can package that into a credit, you can sell it, and that's a way to get more capital to continue and make this activity longstanding. So this biodiversity credits are an emerging area. Again, there's still not a lot of standards that have been agreed on, but this activity is happening right now. So once we have some more visibility into both of these, hopefully this will become more investable and therefore more scalable. Yes. So we talked about earlier about how, as you had mentioned, this did start in the 70s, but 
it's been, I would say, a slow but steady growth. And now we're starting to hear the term. People know the term impact investing, sustainable investing. I think this is something that's going to be interesting to explore again. I'd love to certainly revisit this on my podcast. And it'll be very interesting to see what this is like a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. Yeah, count me in. I would love to come back and see where we are in a year or so. As I said, things are changing rapidly. They've changed more in the last five or six years than they did the prior five years. And we're likely to see this space going as more people are piling in and they want to be part of it, but also recognize all the challenges. So I look forward to our next appointment. Oh, me too. We'll definitely revisit this because there's so much about it. And I have to say that this is something with all that I've covered with agriculture and CPG of what I'm learning in this podcast today is amazing and fascinating. Well, thank you very much for having me and for the great question. Yes. So we're about to wrap things up now, but is there any last words, any last pieces of information you'd like to give the listeners about sustainable and impact investing? course, look, my final line, which should have been my opening line, is that sustainability matters not just to how we live, but also it matters to how we invest. It has financial performance implications. I think the listeners of this podcast probably know it already. That's why they're coming and they're clicking and they're listening. But it's important to think about how we're investing our capital, even as I said earlier, our pension money and so forth, and thinking, are these questions being considered? So that's my final word there and more to come, hopefully. I think that those are some good final words to live by. Before you go, let the listeners know where they can learn more about UBS online. Of course. So very simply, UBS.com or searching on your favorite search engine, UBS Global Wealth Management, sustainable investing will land you to a lot of our publicly available information, as well as will help you find a way to find a UBS financial advisor who can then help you actually action on a lot of these ideas and find these investment opportunities that we've been talking about. Wonderful. Amantia, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. New episodes of the show are released every Wednesday. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore on your favorite podcast site or app. You can also listen to all my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed.